Every Monday to Friday, this is Peter Lewis's Money Talk. Money Talk. Good morning from me, Peter Lewis. Welcome to Money Talk for Wednesday, the 25th of October. It's Hong Kong Policy Address Day. Chief Executive John Lee will deliver his 2023 policy address later this morning, and we've got that covered on Money Talk today and tomorrow. This podcast is sponsored by Surfing Group, which is headquartered in Singapore and offers online financial services to 30 million customers across 10 countries. And in today's business and finance headlines, Hong Kong Chief Executive John Lee will deliver his second policy address this morning. And it's being reported that Hong Kong parents with newborns will receive 20,000 Hong Kong dollars as part of a suite of incentives the city leader will announce today to boost the birth rate. The South China Morning Post reported there will be other big measures in the address, such as an easing of stamp duties for certain transactions in the property market, enhancing reindustrialization by exploring new markets in the Middle East, and improving the living standards of tenants of subdivided flats. President Xi Jinping made his first known visit to the nation's central bank since he became president a decade ago. President Xi, along with Vice Premier He Lifeng and other government officials, visited the People's Bank of China and the State Administration of Foreign Exchange in Beijing on Tuesday afternoon. The Vice Premier also visited the nation's sovereign wealth fund. The visit comes as state leaders, regulators and top bankers are set to gather at a closed-door financial policy meeting early next week to set medium-term priorities for the 61 US dollar, trillion US dollar financial services industry and prevent risks. China's legislator approved a plan to raise the fiscal deficit ratio for 2023 to about 3.8% of GDP, the official Xinhua News Agency said Tuesday, well above the 3% set in March, which the government has generally considered a limit for the nation. And the plan includes additional sovereign debt worth 1 trillion yuan, that's about 137 billion US dollars being issued in the fourth quarter. Taiwan's leading presidential candidate has criticised China over a probe of major Apple supplier Foxconn, saying Beijing should cherish Taiwanese companies and not put pressure on them during an election. Vice President Lai Ching-te, the candidates from the ruling Democratic Progressive Party and front-runner for the January polls, accused Beijing of unfairly targeting the Taiwanese company ahead of an election early next year. On today's programme, I'm joined by Enzio von Fahl, Capital Preservation Specialist at Financial Shield, and Richard Harris, Chief Executive Officer at Port Shelter Investment Management. And with a view from Japan is Dan Kerrigan, CEO of Interactive Brokers Securities in Tokyo. On Wall Street Tuesday, U.S. stocks rose as Treasury yields stabilised and investors focused on a slate of largely positive earnings reports. The S&P 500 added 0.7% to finish the session at 4,248. The Dow getting 205 points or 0.6% to close at 33,141, snapping a four-day losing streak. The Nasdaq Composite climbed 0.9% to 13,140. There are plenty of earnings reports overnight, including Microsoft, Alphabet, Coca-Cola, General Motors and Spotify. And if you go to my daily newsletter at peterlewismoneytalk.substack.com, you can find more details of major U.S. companies' earnings there. U.S. government bond markets stabilised on Tuesday after sharp swings at the start of the week. The 10-year yield was down four basis points at 4.82% after hitting a 16-year high of 5.02% on Monday. The 30-year U.S. yield fell seven basis points to 4.94%, having earlier in the week touched a high of 5.18%. 
Oil prices took another tumble on Tuesday. Downward momentum increased in the New York session, with Brent crude oil settling 2% lower at $88.07 a barrel. Gold was flat on the day at $1,970 an ounce, but when priced in Japanese yen, gold reached a new record high of 297,000 yen per ounce. The US dollar index rose 0.6% to 106 and a quarter on Tuesday after the latest S&P global PMIs for the US beat expectations in another sign the US economy remained robust in October. The US dollar Japanese yen edged towards 150 once again, trading 0.1% higher at 149.84. And the Chinese yuan oscillated around 7.31 renminbi in Shanghai. Mainland Chinese stocks rebounded from pre-pandemic lows on Tuesday. The Shanghai Composite was up 0.8% at 2,962 after hitting the lowest level in almost a year on Monday. And the CSI 300 Index was up 0.4% after closing at its lowest level since February 2019 on Monday. And the gauge has fallen about 15% so far this year in dollar terms. China State Fund Central Hujin Investments bought exchange-traded funds yesterday and said it will boost its holdings in the future as it continues its support for the mainland stock market. Hong Kong stocks fell for the fourth straight session after reopening Tuesday from a public holiday for the Chunyong Festival. The Hang Seng was down 181 points, or 1.1%, at 16,992. That's the lowest level since the 10th of November 2022. But futures markets are pointing to a rebound this morning. Looks like the Hang Seng is going to open about 2% higher. That's around 333 points. Should start the day at around about 17,320 when trading gets going later this morning every monday to friday this is peter lewis's money talk peter lewis's money talk it's a wednesday morning and i'm blessed by having two good doctors in the house this morning we have first of all dr enzio von Fahl, who is a, a financial wealth preservation specialist at financial shield very good morning to good you morning, peter uh, uh, NCO, and also with us, Dr. Richard Harris, Chief Executive Officer at Port Shelter Investment Management. Nice to see you, Richard. Thank you, Peter. It's nice to be in the studio. Yeah, it's great, isn't it? It's very nice to see you both here in the morning. Um, let's start with Hong Kong. Hong Kong's Chief Executive is going to deliver his second policy address this morning. He said on Sunday that his policy address will belong to every citizen, and he displayed a copy in a video of the policy address, which has a green cover and a subtitle that trans- translates as Strive to Improve the Economy, Plan Development, benefit livelihoods and add happiness and the South China Morning Post is reporting this morning that Hong Kong parents with newborns will receive extra happiness in the form of 20,000 Hong Kong dollars as part of a suite of fresh and encouraging incentives to boost the birth rate. And the South China Morning Post said there will also be other big measures in the address, such as an easing of stamp duty for certain transactions in the property market, enhancing reindustrialization by exploring new markets in the Middle East, and improving the living conditions of tenants of subdivided flats. So, Enzio and Richard, let's start there. I mean, this headline, Hong Kong parents with newborns uh, apparently going to receive $20,000 as part of what John Lee calls a suite of fresh and encouraging incentives. Well, I can only sardonically say they'll be happy at birth and they won't be happy when it comes to education fees. Well, so, that's about one term's kindergarten, isn't it? Yes, exactly. Yeah, that's so um, I, I don't think that's I don't think that people are going to have babies because of, of, of a little bit of money. But OK, I mean, it, it, it helps a little bit, but I don't quite see the economic sense of it, frankly. Well, uh, uh, as a great fan of adoption, 
you have to think, you know, it wouldn't be better to look after kids who are already well uh, on the stage at the moment and put them into families who can give very them a good yes, point. future. Very good point, yes. Very good point indeed. I mean, I'm wondering why it's 20,000. Why not 40,000 or 50,000 or 100,000? I'm sort of wondering how this 20,000 number has come about as sort of being the dividing line between incentivizing someone to have a baby and not. I should think the decision-making process is something that people thought, well, maybe 40,000 is too high, 10,000 is too low, so that's how they ended up at 20,000. Yeah. Well, a committee is, is a, a horse is a camel designed by a committee, so let's not forget that. I, I can't imagine, though, that... Uh, I mean, I, I can uh, maybe imagine that if you're already planning a family, this might give you a little bit of an extra incentive to, to hurry mm. up, but I can't imagine that $20,000 is going to persuade you to have a baby if you weren't planning to do it anyway. It's a little bit like the happy Hong Kong that we've had, and then, the, then the, the boost to the economy with the night stalls. It's all kind of... I, I, I often just get the impression that these are ideas conjured up by people sitting in little glass houses... I'm thinking up something cute that might that they think might happen where they really very rarely except for Regina have much contact with the population. Well, do, do we need more people in Hong Kong when we have people living in cages in mm, Kowloon? Yes, very good uh, the point. average size of a property is 400 square feet. You know, it's a policy that very doesn't really fit Hong Kong when in fact there are plenty of other good things that the chief yes. executive is looking at that really do need uh, a little bit of a help. It doesn't yes. really address the underlying issue, does it? No. Why is it that people don't want to have children anymore? Or a lot of people don't seem to want to. What is it that's disincentivizing them? And also, it doesn't address why so many people are leaving Hong Kong either, which is leaving us with this brain drain. It doesn't seem to really get to the, the, heart, uh, the, the heart of the issue. That's what I mean by what I call oil and water. In other words, the government is the oil and we're the water. And they're just not going to mix and I'm afraid that aloofness is coming here yet again. Richard's point is very well taken, and tragically, it's also something that they should really hit hard in the policy address, which, of course, won't happen, the social housing. I mean, even the Beijing government keeps on telling us to get, get cracking on that, and somehow we hear about long-dated long projects that will into Never Neverland. Why not just use Penny's Bay and, and, and use house some of these poor wretches there? Well, I, I, I'm all in favour of this consultation, and uh, the government has done quite a lot of consultation with the public, but I can't help thinking as I was walking on the, the trails uh, the other day that, you know, maybe senior government ministers probably should get out and start walking the trails yes. in Lantau and Hong Kong and meet some people. Uh, right. Or maybe they should go to Lok Fu Estate, Lok Wara Estate, where you have people there who are quite poor, living in government housing, salt-of-the-earth people, uh, many of them often disabled. And I think if government ministers went there, then perhaps they really would be focused on, uh, uh, on some of the issues yes. that can be dealt with by government. Mm. And then there's still, in, I mean, in a city like Hong Kong, there's a million people living below the poverty line. I mean, that's something that really is, is, is a shame and a scandal, isn't it, on the, on the city? Well, it's that a blemish. Yeah, it, it's always difficult, this, this poverty line issue, you know, where do you actually draw it? I, I mean, it, also, when you go somewhere like Lokwa, you realise, you know, it's relatively clean. People are, are housed. Um, uh, there are people there who aren't earned very much, and the people who actually built Hong Kong in the place that, that it is. And, and, but I do feel there are plenty of lessons to go yes. uh, when you go walking around those housing estates, as I uh, sadly only too occasionally do.
Mm. I mean, I have to confess, I haven't walked around some of those housing estates, no. but when I do talk, I do talk to people out and about uh, when I go out. And I seem to be detecting that there really is a general malaise about Hong Kong at the moment and, and a sort of a pessimistic outlook. I mean, maybe part of it is because we've been in a recession three out of the last four years, which hasn't helped. And so many businesses have closed down because of the, the pandemic. But that does seem to be an issue, doesn't it? That there is a, just a general pessimistic feeling about Hong Kong. And we seem to have lost our, lost our sparkle. Well, it's because the, the sparkle has been replaced by verbiage, for instance, where the international financial centre, that's brandish, but nobody can speak English. The educational system is lagging. These are all, and then everybody blames China, which I wouldn't. I think China's probably very disappointed in this. I think there's so many local issues, such as Richard was just mentioning now, on the social side, for instance, or English, or indeed vocational training, that could be addressed and would really get the place moving again, but no... They're sitting in their glass houses. They're not mixing with the populace, as we've all agreed. And that's the result. Mm. I think the other thing is Hong Kong's a very reactive place. You know, we've always been a reactive place through history. It's been a place where people have come to, to do things and bounce off each other. And I think now that China's economy is uh, treading water at the moment, we don't have that kind of reaction. We don't have billionaires coming in wanting to buy lots of property. Uh, and as a result, we're sort of in a malaise. And in a way, I think we have to accept it because we are so dependent now on, on yes. the motherland. But part of the part of the problem seems to be that our, the way in which we do things in the city has changed, doesn't it? You came here to Hong Kong because you wanted to pull yourself up by your bootstraps, do, get on with things. Uh, the government never really got in the way. Market forces dictated, mm. you know, where investments and capital and people went. Whereas now we seem to be moving much more towards a planned economy yes. where the government's going to decide where we build new businesses and industries and, and you know, which sectors we're going to be competitive in rather than the market telling us where it wants to have, uh, you know, new businesses put and, um, and which sectors we ought to be investing in. It's this ridiculous emulation of China. It's, it's this sycophantic, I'm trying to outguess what the Chinese want and then they, I hope that they will favour my proactive obedience. And we see this yet again with, these, with this planned economy that let's have night markets, let's have night stalls, let's have a happy Hong Kong. I mean, these things, if nothing else, are just a, an embarrassment to anybody who's, who's going abroad and saying, I live in Hong Kong. Oh, so is it happy over there? I, I think the government has to start realising that Hong Kong is different from China, you know, such as with the yeah. uh, spending money for more children policy. It's not ready for Hong Kong. We need um, ha housing issues dealt with. Uh, we have a sluggish economy. And I think if you look at the government's move into innovation, what are 8 million people going to do compared to Shenzhen instead of innovating? What we should be doing is taking innovations from there and putting them into practice, um, uh, increasing electric vehicles there are a few electric buses around but not enough um, cleaning up the air for instance if you've got a ferry to Lantau you get a lung full of uh, black smoke the, these little things that could change um, uh, things a lot uh, in mm. Hong Kong that are very specific to Hong Kong and what we we need do you remember the smart city blueprints uh, how many times was that revised oh. a few years ago but we seem to have got nowhere do we in, in becoming a smart city and becoming a cleaner and a greener city well the consultants did and um i thought we had a tech hub in cyberport but that doesn't that seems to have gone on the by but they're going to be appointing a new chief executive for the cyberport it's all kind of patently childish i think well i think in innovation we have the money to develop we don't really are in a position mm. to innovate as such we need to be developers. 
and city developers and focusing on what mm. works yes. in a small, densely populated city. And what serves the population, yeah. So there was an article in the Wall Street Journal yesterday, I think it was, saying that basically the corporate retreat from Hong Kong um, is accelerating. They were saying that although international companies began trickling out of Hong mm. Kong a few years back, that's now starting uh, to accelerate the number of u.s companies operating in the city has fallen for four years um in a row let me ask you first of all why is that what why are companies slowly either they're either going to the mainland or going down to singapore and, and setting up there what is it that they're worried about well i i think you're right peter but i think the other thing is we've got to see where we've come from where hong kong was a major um, global hub and we're now turning into an international hub I think there's no doubt we will retain our our entry point as a gateway to China and I think that'll be very important but that requires a different sort of office it doesn't necessarily require require a big office with a, a huge mm -hmm. floor in a building in central um, it's maybe small uh, few person offices uh, that can act as a rep office and actually be the hub of, of a lot of trading so I think that the economy is changing in that sense um, even though uh, you know we see a lot of people going out I actually am quite surprised about how many new faces I'm seeing around town uh, but they tend to be more junior people the person who'd come in to sort of run an office or be part of a smaller office rather than a big um, uh, multinational hub I think maybe also just to add to what Richard's saying that you've got a lot of companies in China not being so happy, foreign companies in China not being so happy, not feeling so welcome anymore. So if they're downsizing there, it goes hand in hand with downsizing in Hong Kong. Are we being affected also by the corporate crackdown that's going on on the mainland? Is right. that also worrying yeah, people yeah. here as well? I mean, look at what we've seen with Foxconn uh, recently, WPP, executives travelling on the mainland can just suddenly mysteriously disappear. Yes. Is that putting people off? I, think I should imagine it I would. Think the, I think that's part of the problem, but also the elephant in the room is, of course, also the high costs here. And, and as Richard was saying, if you can now do everything via tech, then you don't really have to be, the, the incentive to be in Hong Kong isn't what it was 10 or 20 years ago because of tech can replace a lot of the communications after Zoom calls. Yeah, uh, on the other hand, and I have been telling a number of young people this, Hong Kong actually at the moment is a great place to come because there is opportunity here with people leaving. You know, you could easily come for a few years as we all did and stay the rest of your career. Mm. Um, and I think we're going back almost to the kind of environment it was in the 70s or 80s for uh, foreign talent maybe wanting to come in here, that there are opportunities and the cost may be high, but the salaries aren't too bad either and the tax rate is to die for. Mm. Well, a big focus is also going to be on property curbs. A lot of calls to lift now these property restrictions that have been in place um, for, for the last few years. Do you, some people say, yes, that's a good idea because the property market has been in decline now for, what, since 2021, if you look at the centerline uh, leading real estate uh, index. But at the same time, other people are worried that all you're going to do is make property more unaffordable uh, for those people that aren't on the ladder. So where do you stand? Well... I mean, I'm not a property expert but at all, but I just think this the stamp duty of 15%, that needs to go to give it at least some incentive. That's at least a way more, that's way more effective than giving potential parents $20,000 to have a baby, I can tell you that. Absolutely. I think the other thing, too, is that, you know, talk about reducing stamp duty and stuff is probably four years too late. You know, this was brought in during mm. um, a real boom when everybody had the red mist and prices were going up and people were being priced out of the market. Now, 
there's very little trading because nobody wants to sell. Uh, everyone wants to buy, but that means there's there's no trading. Uh, we're in a situation where uh, the tax is a real hindrance, and it's been a real hindrance for too many years now. So as far as I can see, it should come off completely. What I find interesting is you've got a leading property group here, uh, China Chem, saying basically the golden era for city housing is over, but they mean the golden era for them, not for, <laughs> yes. not, not for us. Well, that's right. And if you look at the, uh, the office space that's starting to shrink, and you know people do want to work from home and technology allows it, um, you'll still need offices, but hot desking works perfectly well. I think the three of us have probably been doing it for yes. decades now. Um, and, um, uh, and why not? So I think the office property sector uh, is in trouble uh, and then you know why doesn't the government then increase the conversion of office property to mm. residential because that space can be used mm. just as a broader perspective also what we're seeing in Hong Kong is exactly what happened in London in the 80s when I was in the city that all of a sudden Quarry Bay was or whatever uh, Canary Wharf, Canary was, Wharf was, yes. was, was a big deal and where's Canary Wharf now, the other thing that um, we've been suffering from, trade. Trade's been in decline here, um, obviously partly hit by sluggish um, global demand. But the business sector there, the, the local chambers of commerce, wanting some support to help uh, sort of companies, particularly small companies in the, the trading, the export um, sector. What, what do you think could be done there? Well, I... Uh you know, what, what we're looking at a lot of these policies is we're pushing on a string. We're trying to encourage people to do stuff when there isn't uh, anything there. We, we need to try and encourage demand more. And, you know, we're talking yes. about increasing foreign talent coming into Hong Kong. You know, that's important because they demand goods and services. Um, there's been a, a worrying uh, slowdown, uh, or, or should I say increase in talk about slowing down trade between EU and China, US and China. Mm. I don't see, despite the political differences, that that necessarily should make a difference. You know, as long as visas are easy to get, as long as you're, uh, th there is housing available, there are schools available, you know, this sort of trade will continue. You've got to make it uh, a place welcome for people to come, to live, uh, in order to trade as well. But I'm still confident that trading will continue, even if political political environment remains difficult. One gets the impression, though, that it's gone a little bit anti-foreign here. It just seems as if the Cantonese frankly don't like anybody. They don't like the Mandarin speakers coming in. They don't like us being here. And so, of course, the for some foreigners probably just don't feel welcome. And that's, that's maybe also a minor but yet very real factor. It is interesting, isn't it, that these sort of talent schemes that John Lee set up last year to attract people to come to Hong Kong, I mean, they have exceeded expectations in terms of the numbers, but what's interesting is it's nearly all mainland people coming to Hong Kong, very few international uh, people applying under those schemes from the Europe, Europe, US and so on. Well, I think there's no doubt that when you're overseas and you see the news coming from Hong Kong, it's not overly positive and I don't think there's any particular spin or slant placed on that I I just think that that perhaps uh, the government does need to bring in um, incentives or, or maybe things that are a little bit stronger than happy Hong Kong you know uh, relax visas for um, people say under 25 uh, to come in here uh, mm -hmm. and, and to spread it more and not be so suspicious of people coming in because as I was yes. saying a moment ago I think Hong Kong is an excellent place for somebody to start maybe not start their career but come in after their first second third job um, and really make a career here.
but it's also the high costs. We were talking about the property market before. I think that a lot of the firms, at least for central, are not turned on exactly by the high, the, the extremely high rental costs. And we were just out in Saikung, and even there you're paying 100 to 200,000 a month just for a shop front and a little sort of piazza, which is just amazing. I, I was quite baffled, I must say. Well, I think it's uh, Hong Kong's very sticky with yes. property prices concerned in oh. terms of coming down. And uh, people don't like to reduce those headlines, but what they will do is give um, uh, rent-free yes. periods and things like that. But I think, you know, we've... We're probably, if you were going to guess, as a fund manager would guess, I would reckon we're maybe 20, 30% off the top in terms of what the real prices are. Um, uh, and maybe one day people are going to have to bite the bullet, bring prices down there so it looks more affordable, and then, um, uh, and then we'll start from what is a true price base. Okay, well, let's switch our attention to the markets. We had on Monday the most volatile day in the U.S. Treasury markets since the regional banking crisis back in March. Huge swings in yields on long-dated bonds. The 10-year yield at one stage uh, peaked at 5.02%. It's since come back after Bill Ackman said he was ditching his bearish bets that he's held for the last few months on long-term treasuries. He wrote on X, there's too much risk in the world to remain short bonds at current long-term rates. So the 10-year yield now is stabilizing around about 4.85%. But nevertheless, what is the impact on the economy, on the, on the US economy, of rates yields at 5%? Well, I think it's it's going to go what Hugh Pillar of the Bank of England calls the, the, the Cape Town effect, or the Table Mountain effect, that what at least I've felt for some time, that rates are going to get stuck at a higher level for a longer time. And this is kind of news to the market because there were so many people in the futures markets who were forecasting that rates would be cut and the economy would sort of go back, zing-de-ding, move back up. And so I think it's the effect on the economy is that, it, and we'll get into that on John Greenwood's article, uh, tighter money does and higher prices of money do, at the end of the day, dampen demand, dampen economic activity. It's as simple as that. Well, I think that's right. I think prices will stay higher for longer. We're now looking at uh, Treasury yield 10-year, which is kind of a benchmark at around mm. 5%. But I remember us having exactly the same discussions when Treasury yields went through 3%. <laughs> and what seems to have happened is that we have had a lot of um, injection of cash into the economy because of COVID, and that's kept things going. But, you know, the, the, the thing I think that everybody forgets is although the situation looks difficult, markets are extremely adaptable. And they generally adapt. And if markets, things happen slow enough for markets to adapt to interest rates at 5%, we'll be fine. 5% isn't high. 5% is probably the sort of price you should be paying if you want to borrow money. Mm. I think you're right, but it's, it's for the... But we're not used to it. Well, That's right. So the system has to adapt. If it happens overnight, as it did back in you know, the mm. 87, that's one thing. But if the system has time to adapt, we can get used to it. But as my mother-in-law always taught us, if when interest rates are low, the wrong people get rich. So the wrong people got rich by rates of 0.5 to 1%, and now they're 5% on the Fed funds. We know that they don't borrow Fed funds. We kind of figured that one out. But I'm just saying that the it's Richard is right that in absolute terms, the, the rate is still very low. But in relative terms, for the greedy person who has been wise and leveraged up to the eyeballs, um, this is, of course, a huge hit. Mm. Well, regular listeners to this program will know that I've been comparing for a while now this market environment to 1987. Um, and I remember back in 1987 when I was working in the City of London, then we also saw sharp rises in Treasury bond yields. 
also a lot of volatility in the currency markets um, as well and then that led to the October 87 market crash now just to be clear I am not predicting a market crash it's never wise to try and predict mm. market crashes because you're wrong most of the time but nevertheless it seems to me there are a lot of similarities between what's happening now in the bond markets and what happened back in 1987 so I was very interested in an article in the Wall Street Journal yesterday under the headline, Another Black Monday may be around the corner. And it was written by our own John Greenwood, who uh, is the father of the Hong Kong dollar right. currency peg, along with uh, Steve Hankey. Basically, what they were saying, they put some sort of economic numbers a bit around what I've been saying about the similarities between now and 1987. But they said uh, the Federal Reserve's policies are threatening U.S. financial markets and the economy. They're in danger of a steep recession and the risk of a repeat of 1987's Black Monday. And their argument is that basically the Fed has made two mistakes. It first of all got it wrong uh, by leaving monetary policy too easy for too long in the belief that inflation was transitory. They flooded uh, the the system with, with money and as a result... The money supply uh, shot up and inflation shot up with it. And they're now saying that they're compounding that mistake by doing the reverse right now in that money, money supply is contracting very fast at an alarming rate. Inflation is going to tumble, may even go negative, And as a result, it's going to drag the US economy into recession. Now, we've all read, the, the three of us have certainly read that article. If you haven't seen it yet, maybe go and take a look at the Wall Street Journal. It is a very interesting article, and there is data in that about what's happened to the money supply, which, of course, John Greenwood is a monetarist and focuses mm. very uh, heavily on the monetary supply. But what, what do you think, first of all, of, of this analogy? Are you worried at all that maybe we're heading down the same path to disaster as in 1987, or is it going to be a different type of disaster? Well, I'm reminded of, of Harold Macmillan's quote about uh, politics, you know, what do you fear most? He said, events, dear boy, events. And it really depends what comes around the corner. My base case is that whereas I completely agree with John, I think the Fed is, um, uh, has, has really acted like a yes. bunch of economists rather than central bankers. You know, they've been looking in the rearview mirror uh, three months behind. Um, so they have got it wrong. They did put too much money in the economy. They're now trying to break the economy. But, you know, John's right. If you reduce money supply, you're going to have lower inflation, you're going to have lower growth. Hey, that's why you do it. You know, mm -hmm. you put interest rates up to put a break on the economy. So I, I don't find that um, too surprising, although I agree with most of his analysis. Where I think I do differ is that these markets are very adaptable. And in 87, interest rates changed very fast. Uh, as I said a moment ago, you know, we've seen interest rates crawl up through 2%, through 3%, now into 5%. You know, the market has had time to adapt. Um, we may well have an event down the road that is a trigger that causes a shock, as it did in 87. It's difficult to see where that is at the moment if we've survived both Ukraine and Israel. Um, it's going to be out there, but I'm not so sure whether it's visible at the moment. I agree with that. I would add, I, th I think that John Greenwood's analysis is spot on. Um, it's nothing more than my economic clock that whenever you have an excess supply of money, switching to an excess demand for money by curtailing monetary growth, you then have problems in the asset markets because asset markets are fed by excess supplies of money. If they shrink, then the asset market shrinks. But on top of that, and that's where he's a little bit very one track with his monetarist is that you do also have these unregulated shadow banks. And I think there's a real mm -hmm. 
danger there that it's fine and good to make JP Morgan and all these other banks groan under compliance departments and us stockbrokers or extra and fund managers, but what about the unregulated stuff? That's really where the problem can happen. So my take is that when the change in the economic time coupled with, sh with chunky shadow banking speculation, that's what's going to cause a at least a, a steep decline, a crash doesn't need, necessarily need to happen. Chaos comes from the Greek word chaos, which just means abyss. And how long is a piece of string? You don't know how deep it is and where it's going to come from. Well, the real abyss, I think, is is you're looking at the debt mountains. You know, we're now looking mm. at what U U US 1.7 trillion um, deficit or something. Yeah, We've got uh, large deficits in China as well. Uh, we don't even have to talk about Europe. You know, that's a sort of Europe's no. middle name. But it's not just debt, it's the leverage associated with the debt is probably still too high because mm -hmm. people took on debt when interest rates are low. And then what we forget about is this derivative mountain. Um, and trillions and yes. trillions. Yeah, trillions and trillions. Now, it only takes a, a default by a big Plus player parts, to yeah. get us into a 2008 scenario again. These are the kind of events that I'm talking about that would trigger the House yes. of Cards. Mm, one of the biggest derivatives out there is swaps on US interest rates, on, on Treasury bond yields, mm. in fact. So, you know, there's a lot riding on what's, um, what, what is going on. Um, one of the things they say um, in, in this article is they talk about quantitative tightening, because that as well as interest rates going mm. up and yields going mm. up, and also uh, the, uh, the the Fed the Fed is tightening it as well by removing bonds from its balance sheet that accumulated well basically since the the global financial crisis I think a trillion dollars has been unwound now over uh, so far this year and they're saying that that is adding to the tightening that's going on as well as bond yields moving up which is also a form of tightening so in effect um, this is this is in effect over tightening that at some point uh, the system is going to break because too much money um, is being taken out so what, what do you think about that because the fed has always said this will go on in the background no one will ever notice now in this article they disagree with that and say you know we're getting to the point where we will notice very soon uh, this quantitative I think, tightening i think we are already i think that bank lending is beginning is already on the is beginning to wane a little bit and the uh, one there's a lot of murmur in the hong kong market about people remortgaging their homes at the banks, but not this has not become public knowledge yet. So mm -hmm. I think it's already that side of the equation is already happening along with the slowdown in global growth in, in global trade. Yes, I, I mean people have also been looking at the thirty-year, which which when I was a boy was mm -hmm. the uh, treasury market that everybody would look at, um, which has also gone up quite substantially. But I wonder also whether if you look at the uh, data regarding Chinese holding of U.S. treasuries, whether the continual selling by the Chinese authorities of U.S. treasuries is also not affecting, because it hasn't really affected it up to now. Mm -hmm. But of course, when we see this pressure on interest rates elsewhere maybe we're starting to see that come through in prices as well well and, what, sorry, and, and sorry sorry peter yeah and also just adding on to what richard was saying it's also the the increased issuance of debt that you were saying before that's also bringing the price down so the yields are going up 
I mean, you have to say, though, I mean, I've looked through this. I I would say maybe in in contrast to what they're saying in the article is the market has handled it very well so far. A lot of debt, a trillion dollars, has been rolled off the balance sheet, which means someone else has got to buy it. We know it's not the Chinese. We know it's not the Japanese. But nevertheless, um, it has rolled off without causing too much damage. and, And the market has been able to absorb it up to now, I should add, that's a very important caveat, up to now, it has been able to absorb this pretty well, hasn't that's it? That's the, precisely the danger. I think they are a little bit like the government here, a little bit with their heads in the clouds, not wanting to accept reality. Look at how long it took for the market to accept reality that interest rates necessarily wouldn't necessarily sort of start coming down next year. That was already six weeks ago they were already still, they were still saying that. Mm-hmm. I think Katie Martin's article on the Weekend FT was very useful on the long view basically saying that normally you would expect the Treasury prices to go up and gold to go up in the time of a crisis. That ain't happening yet. And I think it's a lot of this is just delusional um, that people say, well, I can still make money. Let's, uh, it's last drinks time, perhaps. Mm. But don't forget the, the story's not over yet. You know, as soon mm. as the central uh, bankers uh, realise that their pension is being affected by severe market slowdown, they're going to cut rates. So uh, although it's good to look at these figures now and and John's exactly right in terms of putting out his path to the future of money supply shrinking and therefore that's not not good the fed could increase money supply mm-hmm. if there was a crisis so you know yes. all all bets are off and and okay that's their way of trying to help the system adapt but of course looking at further down the road our grandchildren are going to end up paying that mm-hmm. money back what it says is that what's saved us so far is basically all the excess savings from the COVID um, handouts. That's kept businesses hiring, it's kept consumers spending, but the article says the effect of that excess money, which has still been giving the economy a lift, is is almost exhausted. That fuel is almost uh, run out now, and then the economy is going to be running on on fumes. Do Do you think that's right? Do you think we're now coming at the end of basically, you know, everyone's spent their handouts? Well, I think so. I mean, I, I went to that Bible of an economist, the Wikipedia, and um, <laughs> looked at the causes of these crashes. 1907, it was always a speculation bubble. So that's why I call my piece. Yeah, I wrote that week. article on Wikipedia, by the way. Oh, right. Okay. <laughs> ah, well, then you know that 1929 was a bubble, 87 was a bubble, 2009 was bubble speculation, 2020 was spe- geopolitical. So I think that, and so the next crash, I think, is just, I'm going to reiterate this is very much this mixture between the non-regulated banks, the debt mountain, which is part of the non-regulated bank story, not only one part of it, and of course then the shrinking money supply, the change in economic time. Uh, I'm going to make an analogy between uh, climate change and the economy. What we seem to be doing uh, to the earth is is beating it up. However, uh, it does seem that the earth is able to adapt quite well to the damage that we do do to, um, uh, to, to the environment. It's a little bit like the economy. The economy's been extremely adaptable. Um, and as Enzia is saying, you know, these events tend to be during bubbles, during shocks when markets are very fragile. We have a base case of negativity around at the moment, but still the economies keep uh, coming through. Mm-hmm. And I think unless we get a big event where the markets cannot adapt, um, uh, we'll, um, uh, we, we, we'll should, we should 
you know, knock along at the bottom. Just to get all of us thinking, also, of course, it's the, the, the new kid on the block is really the internet and the transmission that is just so instantaneous through the internet that these lagged effects that, that we all talk about, that John Greenwood also talks about, they may have a very different contour this time. This time may be different, not in the sense that higher rates don't matter, but that they have a different effect. I'm wondering when this lag effect will will come in come in that. because that's like the Wikipedia. John, John was on the program in in the summer, as, as you may remember, and we had a very nice chat back then on on this show about uh, the the decline in money supply, which had been going on really since mm. the start of the year. Um, but so far, it hasn't hit, has it? So I'm wondering, you know, maybe is it just a question of time that eventually this will uh, will hit? Well, I, I think again, timing is pretty critical and what you tend to have is uh, one factor being important and then another factor being important and this is one of the issues that we have as uh, economic analysts is that uh, yes there's a big factor coming through and the narratives come through and people say oh things are going very bad very bad but often something else will come through to bail it out uh, but we only see this in the rearview mirror so mm. um, I think timing is all important um, we do try and forecast the future by what happened in the past, but sometimes other factors come in to, to knock our forecasts off, off track. Many people have been telling you the time by looking at somebody else's watch, and that's been what's, what's been going on with the markets in my mind. But I also think that with 95% or so of U.S. mortgages still at fixed rates of 3.9% or so, I think that's a huge buffer because once those things roll over, and I have no idea, maybe somebody in this discussion does, when these things roll over, if at all, then that would really um, make a mess of things. Right. Maybe that's what's keeping this lag effect so long, the fact that you have this unique housing market in the US yes. where you can lock in low rates, and your mortgage rates for 30 it. years. And borrow against it. It's been the same in the UK. A lot of these uh, fixed rates are coming off around the end of the year, early next year, uh, and that's going to be quite punishing. I also wonder how that's going to affect money supply because people with a little bit of cash in the bank is going to look to pay their mortgages off. So then that's going to start impacting banks and, and mortgage mm -hmm. lenders and, and, and people like that. Um, uh, and will also mean that there's less uh, le less ready cash at hand in the economy. Well, great. Thank you very much for your thoughts this morning. Very enlightening discussion. Very interesting there. You heard there Richard Harris, who is Chief Executive Officer of Port Shelter Investment Management, and Jérôme Fowle, who is a Capital Preservation Specialist at Financial Shield. <laughs> I'm joined now by Dan Kerrigan for the first time on Money Talk, the CEO of Interactive Brokers Securities over in Tokyo in Japan. Very good morning, Dan. Morning, Peter. Thank you for hosting. You're very welcome. Look, we've been talking about the bond markets uh, earlier on this morning. Now, of course, the Bank of Japan itself has got its own monetary policy meeting uh, coming up. The Nikkei is reporting that the Bank of, Jap Bank of Japan officials are mulling tweaking yield curve control settings. This is something that they've been teasing us with for a while now, isn't it? And uh, But so far... Um, they, they haven't done anything this year, but are we about to see the end of Japan's ultra-loose monetary policy? Uh, that is the $64 million question, right? Um, the answer is, I don't think they can. Um, I think they're going to have to continue to keep monetary policy loose just because of the, the indebtedness that we know of the country. And uh, I actually think it's interesting always, we have our, our BOJ watchers, um, and I, I think there's been some success elsewhere 
that I, I do think we have to give credit to the bank um, on the macro side, as we know that the, the yen is significantly weakened in uh, the last couple of years. And we also have seen, which I think is more important, is that the CPI figure start to trend around 3%. And the reason I believe this is actually much more important than watching the yield curve for the time being is because for the last 30 years, as you know, we've had this deflation of the bubble going back to the 80s and the impact that that's had on consumption. So people are not inclined to buy anything today if they're of the view that it's going to be cheaper tomorrow. And I think we all are, your listeners are sophisticated. They're all aware that about half of Japanese household assets are sitting in cash, which was fine in the previous sort of macro regime. But clearly with the, the inflation prints now, you're locked in at losing 3% of your competitive purchasing power. So there is some sense of urgency now with the, the, this new inflation regime to put those assets to work in uh, yielding securities, whether it be equities or, or bonds or, or even looking overseas. Have people's attitudes changed? I, I know that um, in the past they were certainly worried about if they bought now it would be cheaper in a few months' time. But now you've got mm. inflation rising much faster than wages. Um, so people mm. are seeing, that, as you said, the real decline now in their living standards and, and in their incomes. So it, it sort of suggests that the monetary policy is no longer appropriate for where we are now. That's true. And again, if I had to boil it down in terms of what's changed, I mean, you and I have both seen a few cycles. Uh, the, the real impetus of the bubble going back many decades is a, an effort on the U.S. government to try to reduce Japan's external trade surplus. Mm. And now what I think is interesting, all of these reform measures that are being talked about, which we can go into greater detail, are actually emanating domestically. So uh, Prime Minister Kishida is really trying to take up the mantle of former Prime Minister Abe in terms of implementing some, some meaningful reforms in terms of how the economy is structured. And I, I think he's enlisted some interesting partners. The, the most interesting character in the drama now is uh, Mr. Yamaji from the head of the, the Tokyo Exchange, as it's called. I, in my role, I've had three or four, four encounters with him and I just think it's interesting for your listeners to be aware if they're, if they're not. First uh, meeting that I met Mr. Yamaji was a, actually a, an activist convention. And he was the introductory speaker. And he said, as the head of the Japan Exchange, I welcome this activity. And there were some foreign activists, constructivist activists. There were a couple of domestic people speaking at this. But it was the first time I had ever could recall the head of the exchange saying that he welcomes engagement shareholders. And uh, there also is a push now for those companies that are listed on the exchange that are trading below one times book to better deploy their capital. A lot of these companies actually have a lot of cash on the balance sheet. And there are efforts now to just to get them to look at better deployment, whether it be share buybacks, whether it be um, raising dividends or selling off underperforming uh, portfolio companies. But again, this is all coming from the exchange. It's a bit embarrassing to have half of the listed companies trading below book. Mm. It kind of defeats the purpose of being a public company at this point. So I just think there's some interesting things that are, that are afoot 
that you, you do notice when you're here. There's I'm, been all sorts of, uh, yeah, noise about um, the, the rollout of the, the new NISA program. So they're trying to really make the effort to make this a, a shareholder-friendly uh, economy here. And he's going to start, isn't he, a name and shame list uh, ne- next that year? That he is. Yeah, so if you are the CEO of a one of these companies that is trading below book, you have to come up with a sort of corrective action, not a corrective action plan, but some sort of plan that you need to file with the exchange for how you're going to improve your returns. Mm. So the last number I'd seen was about 31% of those companies that are eligible um, have filed. So there's a long way to go. But the point is shareholders have not really been uh, really that important in Japan as they have been in sort of the English-speaking countries. But we've got a long way to go, but at least we're seeing some tangible signs that the shareholders are moving up the totem pole in terms of importance, which is encouraging. This this is a game changer, isn't it, for foreign investors who are looking at Japan. It's one of the things that have been encouraging them to, to go into the market. And if you're a dividend investor, you must love Japan at the moment, where you know, you've got all this cash being handed back to shareholders. I mean, this must be the market to go to. Well, we all know that we've had a number of false dawns in the last 30 or 35 years. And the interesting thing is this this is going to become a, a stock picker's market in many way be, ways because it's not going to be a blanket uh, move. It's going to be individual company leaders, CEOs, chairmen, boards making these decisions. So uh, we're going to need some, some boots on the ground here to see who's doing what. But it's a, it's a very interesting time here in Japan. Mm. So what, what what is the outlook now for the Japanese stock market? I mean, it's been one of the best performing markets in the world uh, so far uh, this year. Um, Prime Minister Kishida is encouraging foreign investors to go and invest even more um, in, in Japan. So what, what what is the outlook? Is it still rosy? Well, I think we need to sort of make the distinction between the economy and, and the market. So we don't, I think even the most bullish economists are not really looking for the Japanese economy to start roaring again as it did in the 1980s. What it really is, it's the hand-to-hand combat. With what are these individual companies going to do to sweat their own assets? They've got plenty of underperforming assets, whether, as you said, it's cash on the balance sheet or having a look at their portfolio companies, seeing is, is a holding that they've got mission critical or is it something that they could sell off and a, a different management team could actually do better with these subsidiaries. So it's not necessarily the outlook of the market. I know it's a cliche. It's, it's not a stock market. It's a market of stocks. But you really do need to get here and get out and visit these companies and just see what their individual plans are and make mm-hmm. your decisions that way. That's, that's how I think is best to approach the market overall. And, and the economic outlook has darkened a little bit, hasn't it? If we look at that PMI number. Uh, it that it has. Again, I don't, really, I don't see anything changing wholesale there. Um, but as you said, there there are things to do here on an Come, individual basis. Coming back to, to sort of where we started on the Bank of Japan, if the Bank of Japan does eventually decide to, to do something, it's, it's a little bit ironic because it, it's sort of tightening just as, um, you know, the Fed is being more and more accused of over-tightening and overdoing it. Mm-hmm. Um, there was an article in the Wall Street Journal yesterday by, uh, by John Greenwood, which said that um, money supply is collapsing um, around the world now this year, and that's yes. going to plunge uh, the global economy into recession and p- potentially cause a, a financial crisis so it will be a bit ironic mm. if um if japan suddenly started raising rates just at the point at which maybe uh, the fed has gone and overdone it and tipped the u.s into recession 
Right. I, I don't necessarily see that happening, Peter. I, I think the, the BOJ is going to remain uh, somewhat relatively loose compared to certainly the where we are in the cycle for the other larger economies. But negative, though, isn't it? Negative rates. That's, that's the thing. Mm-hmm. Well, we've muddled through thus far. But uh, as I said, I think the real action is in terms of what's, what's happening at the behest of the government and, uh, and the exchange. Mm. Is, is the BOJ in a bit of a hole? I mean, it wants to sort of somehow try and get out of this because it's sort of, it, it's got these constraints that are no fault of its own. They've been there for a while at the Bank of Japan now because of previous monetary policy. But is it is it in a bit of a hole now, a bit of a bind that even if it wanted to get out of it, it, it can't? I find that hard to argue against, let's say that. <laughs> <laughs> very diplomatic i know but it's it's interesting times isn't it because um you know the the bank of japan clearly now is the one well maybe apart from the people's bank of china which doesn't have negative rates but nevertheless has low rates it's it's really the standout now uh, in in the global economy in terms of where its monetary policy uh, mm. monetary policy is so we all sit here from overseas wondering just how long this can possibly go on for and it's sacrificing right. the yen in the process, the, the yen's being thrown under the bus. Well, that's it. Something has to give. And then whether it's tweaking the yield curve, it comes down to tweaking the yield curve or letting the, letting the yen go. I, I, my view would be, I, I think it's politically more expedient to let the yen go. Is there anything they can do to try and support it? I know there's a lot of jawboning talking about intervention. I, but Again, um, we, we've seen sterilized intervention over the years. It hasn't really worked. Mm. And, and these things work in cycles. I Again, I can't put a, a target on it, but um, if it comes down to letting the, the yield curve control go or, or seeing a bit more weakness in the yen, I, I, my, I would think they would, they would err towards uh, letting the yen weaken a little bit more. But mm. again, we don't give advice. I want to make sure your, your readers know that. Yeah, yeah, for sure, for sure. But it, it seems, though, isn't it, that the only thing that really that is going to work in terms of supporting the yen is if the Bank of Japan actually raised interest rates rather than talking about things and rather than talking about potential support. None of that really works. It's going to take a real change in monetary policy for, for the yen to, to take off. Right. But again, they, they like to do things gradually. And we've seen that in the, the long end of the, the JGB curve. So I don't think that's going to I don't think it's going to break necessarily, but we'll, we'll have more gradual moves in my view. Okay. Well, Dan, thanks very much. It's always good to talk to you, and uh, we'll talk to you Pleasure. again very soon. That's Dan Kerrigan, who is the CEO of Interactive Brokers Securities over in Japan. You're listening to Peter Lewis's Money Talk. Money Talk. Thank you for listening to Money Talk this morning. You can find more business and finance information from around Asia in my daily newsletter, which is at peterlewismoneytalk.substack.com. On tomorrow's program, I'm joined by Andrew Ferris, the CEO of Econosis Advisory, and Nick Marrow, lead for global trade at the Economist Intelligence Unit. And discussing the latest developments in the oil markets is Vandana Hari, founder of Vandu Insights. Have a good Wednesday. Money Talk.